Hello, my name is David Turner. This is the Lunar Poetry Podcast. Today's episode is in three parts. Coming up later is Lizzie Palmer talking to Stuart McKenzie and London-based group Poetry on the Picket Line. As always, you can keep up to date with everything we're doing at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook, Tumblr, SoundCloud and iTunes or at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. I've drawn up some online audience feedback surveys, so if you'd like to do me a favour and fill one in, there's a link in the episode description, along with a link to download a transcript of this episode. Transcripts made possible by funding from Arts Council England. If you like what we do, then tell your friends and share episodes on social media, and I'll love you forever. First up is Peter DeGraff Johnson talking to Ross Monaghan at his monthly spoken word night, Poetry at the Pad. Links in the description. The pair chat about poetry as activism and Ross's interest in street art. Here's Peter and Ross. Hello and welcome to Poetry at the Pad number eight, Lyrical Political. Um, I'm your host, the Repeat Beat Poet, and here on the stage with me, we have the wonderful Ross Monaghan. Say hello, Ross. Hey, everybody. D- yeah, ciao. Shout out to everyone listening at home and everyone listening here. Give us a cheer, everyone listening in the room. Love a panto crowd. <laughs> it's really no. Um, indeed. So the subtitle for this event is lyrical, political, um, and we're recording on the 29th of November um, after what has been a fair to say turbulent few months of political events, be it the rise of populism across the world. Um, both right and left, which is a debate we can get onto later. Uh, but obviously the, the big ones, Brexit, Trump, um, the mad snoopers charter, which you actually mentioned in uh, yeah. a bit of your uh, poetry. Scary um, snoopers charter. Scary stuff, man. It's uh, full access to your internet history upon police request. For a year, they can just sweep your data. But, but anyway, we'll get into that later. Um, so as, as a poet who I first met doing an Oxjam gig, which is actually, you know, a form of activism in itself, raising some money for charity. Uh, can you talk about how uh, your your activism interlinks with your poetry? Through some of the opportunities I've had over the last couple of years, working with activist groups and sort of grassroots activists and communities, um, a lot of the stuff I write is observational. It's about what's going on around me. Um, and I think through the chance to engage in some of the bigger issues like the refugee crisis, like nuclear disarmament, like environmental issues, um, about youth management, about youth development, I think it's really important to share your views on that. And I think some of traditional media doesn't really do that. So for me, poetry is a form of protest. It's it's an idea about getting your words out there and being able to share stuff. Um, And I also think it's, it's a lot more accessible rather than just going out on the streets and shouting and ranting at people and telling people they're wrong about things. I think using creative means to actually engage people in conversation is kind of what I'm into. So that's where a lot of my poetry comes from. It's just things that I'm passionate about, things I've observed, but also trying to start conversations. For shizzle. Yeah, man, I dig that vibe a lot. Um, and so speak about some of your other work you do as well outside of just poetry, because I know you get into a lot. Um, and yeah, I, I want to hear all about that stuff. So I think you do youth work as well. Uh, yeah, I'm a youth worker. I work with lots of different organisations. Um, so I'm a freelance as a youth worker, um, but there's been a lot of cuts to youth services over the last couple of years, and there's also been some incredible programmes come out, um, like things like NCS, which is National Citizen Service, um, which they're trying to put all these school leavers through. Um, and I was actually invited into their group two years ago as sort of a creative activist, a creative youth leader, and we use a lot of like 
creative reflection, using art techniques, doing drawing, using poetry. Um, so my youth work is still arts-based, but it's about empowering young people, especially that 16 to 18 bracket who are coming out of school and really haven't been given any life skills and haven't really been told what to expect. And the whole life they've been told, you're going to be this and you're going to fail. Um, so a lot of the work I do with young people is about actually just giving them the confidence and a little bit of a wider view of the world. Um, outside of that, I'm a chalktivist. It's a great movement. Look it up. Chalktivism. Okay, tell us about chalktivism. I'm guessing chalk activism. Yeah? You got it. It's, you got it. There's a lot of blank looking people for a second there, but chalk activism, you got it. Um, and chalktivism actually, it started back in the 80s and there was this group that went out and they, they chalked all over the streets all around the world um, and people joined in. And over the last two years, again, I've been involved in a lot of protests. Um, there's a side of protest that can be quite angry and quite aggressive. Um, and when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, I was involved in that, and I used to fight with the police. And I kind of woke up one day and went, well, this isn't doing any good. Um, and people were actually scared of us. They didn't want to have these conversations. And I literally went out about two years ago to a big protest in London, took a load of chalk with me, sat down in the middle of the street writing this protest, just started writing slogans on the floor, drawing love hearts and stuff. And before I knew it, there was like 50, 60 people joined in, and everyone wanted to write something. Everyone wanted to leave their message behind. Um, and the nice thing about it is it's, it's leaving your mark behind on the streets. It's about telling people your story. But it's, it's not vandalism. It's wash away. You know, it's going to go away. Um, and then last year when the Syria vote came in, this was one of the big moments for chalktivism for me. Um, chalktivism. Um, yeah. we, we, we as a country voted that it was OK to send our planes and our forces over to bomb Syria. And I was really angry. I was really upset. Um, and I actually wanted to come out on the streets of London. I wanted to join my old school protesters and go and stand outside Downing Street and cause trouble and get arrested. Um, and a lot of my friends went to me, it's a really stupid idea. You're a youth worker. And I went, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I guess not. Um, and I thought, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a load of chalk out into Brighton. And we did a huge mural that covered a whole road. Um, and it was an incredible reaction. We just had loads of people stopped. Um, and as part of that, another thing I do is try and make lots of little films about activism and about sharing... Uh, so little mobile uh, mobile phone films. So we just took a phone out and we made a film about chalking on the streets. And then next thing I know, the CND, which is Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, were contacting us and they were like, you guys are crazy. Like you're going out on the streets and drawing and people are actually talking. And it was it just started a movement. So creative activism, and it doesn't have to be chalking. It doesn't have to be poetry. It can be singing songs. It can be drawing art. It can be doing outdoor galleries. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different different aspects to what I do. But I also really believe in some of the work a lot of the grassroots charities are doing with um, the refugees at the moment. Um, yeah. There's a huge crisis in France and in England developing. You know, we're bringing young people over and we can't support them. So I do a lot of work with the Hummingbird Project and the Refugee Council. Um, and that's more about actually just bringing other artists together to put on events and raise funds and support young people and mentor young people. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. It's a comprehensive roundup there of all the stuff you get into. Um, Speaking as a speaking as a poet who uh, you know I, I protested um, and you know I've 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 been in protests like uh, both physically and like you know online protesting is a is a new kind of force as well reaching a different audience of people affecting change in a different way um, as a person who's like I'd say less on the activist side of things it's really inspiring having you down to the pad to share that message to share why you think it's important and to share why you do what you do specifically so like thank you for coming down and sharing that as well chalktivism i'm gonna look that up because i'm pretty sure i would have seen people doing it and just not connected the dots as well uh, if you go on vimeo there's a three-step oh. guide to chalktivism it's pretty easy get some chalk choose a pavement <laughs> write something you know <laughs> it, it it does sound crackingly simple i do enjoy that in protest 
It's wonderful. Um, and then, uh, but also in the poems that you brought down, uh, you had a lot to say about street art and graffiti writing. And personally, it's one of the things that I absolutely love. And for anybody who doesn't already know me or has heard me proselytizing about hip hop, live hip hop all day, every day. And graffiti writing is often like, you know, not focused uh, on as much as like, you know, uh, the art of rhyming or, you know, breakdancing, whatever it is. So tell me how you got into being interested in street art. And uh, once again, because like you, you shouted out a lot of interesting names. You shouted out Wild Style, which is an incredible hip hop documentary that everyone should go and watch. Um, you shouted out a couple of other things. So talk to me about street art and your interest in that. I think for me, street art was something that I've kind of been aware of growing up. When I was at school, I was really lucky to have an art teacher that really encouraged us to look at street artists and graffiti, and he gave us the history from hip-hop, and I was already listening to people like, you know, the Beastie Boys, the classic, but then, you know, Moss Def, and God, so many other people. God. Always shout out Moss Def. Always, yeah. every time. Um, um, and through that, I just started kind of exploring that world a little bit more, and I really kind of got into the history of it. Um, and then I watched Exit Through the Gift Shop and decided I hated Banksy. Um, Controversial. I know, right? Um, I'll explain that in a minute. Um, <laughs> um, but I could see what Banksy was doing and like credit to him, man. He was, bringing, he was bringing messages back out onto the streets in really simple forms that people could connect with, people loved, people were seeking out. And he started a bit of a movement again, like a bit of a youth movement. A lot of people re-engaged with street art. And... Street art isn't just one thing, you know, and graffiti isn't just one thing. There's a whole kind of movement behind it. Um, and as I travel around the world, I saw amazing pieces. And I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time in Berlin and Berlin being like this huge, crazy city full of different graffiti crews. But one of the things I loved about Berlin was they weren't just putting up their names. They were actually putting up these murals that were social commentary about immigration and about, you know, about social development and about the poor districts had these amazing statements against capitalism and against the banks. Um, and it really just engaged me. Um, and when I came back to the UK, there's just lots of people putting stuff out. So I think it's it's been that process. And although I decided I hated Banksy a while ago, uh, I got to give him some credit because I think he re-sparked that movement and the work he did in Palestine and his recent residency in New York was incredible, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really, really thought-provoking. So for me, that's kind of where my interest comes in, the fact that we can use these canvases that other people don't really see, you know, like a brick wall to most people is a brick wall, but to a, a real good writer or a graffiti artist or just an artist in general, you know, they look at that and they see it as a canvas space and they see it as a way to get a message across without being confrontational, which I think is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, man, for sure. And uh, the way that you do that through your spoken word as well, presenting an idea um, and using the vehicle of the poetry as a, just a way to get a message out to people. Um, I think that's a really important thing and all the more important for how crazy the narrative has got in recent times, media narratives, political narratives, the stories that we're told to try and make sense of the world. It's very easy now for things to be to become muddled and uh, for, for stories to become very, very unclear. And so when you have the power of a direct art form like spoken word or like street art where you know you see it on a train or you see it from the train, wherever it is, it's a really immediate feeling. And I think that the power of not only poetry, but obviously the art right now to convey messages to people directly, immediately, where they feel it. I think it's going to become even more important as things get crazier and crazier, as I sadly predict they will. Yeah, do you know, I'd agree with you on that. I think this idea about media and the way we're fed our news is confusing. You know, we, we're fed very sort of one-dimensional. This is what's happening and this is what everybody should think. And 
I may be wrong or I may be right, but I think there's been a kind of social buy-in to that where there's a, a large majority of the population who don't really consider the way they, they're fed their news, the way they process their information. Um, and that kind of upsets me, and I think it actually sparks difficult problems within society. So I think it's really important for artists to stand up and say, you know, there is a different way of looking at this. It isn't necessarily one-dimensional, you know? But, but true, I, I, I do agree with you, but I also think it shows up a second part of that problem, which is the echo chamber. Like, if, if we're here in our wonderful uh, artistic space, speaking to what is usually, like, you know, a fairly, like, left-wing crowd, I can say that without, like, you know, too much worry. I feel that it's also the artist's responsibility to be able to speak outside of the echo chamber, to speak to people who, like, you know, maybe the classic example right now is maybe voted leave and, like, you know, but whatever. What, what I'm really talking about here is being able to reach outside of the echo chamber and to take a message outside of people who would regularly hear it. Do you think that the artist has a responsibility to do that specifically, like, pointedly, or is it just to create whatever art he or she chooses? I think both, to be honest. I think, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, eh? Um, deep. Deep. Well, no, I mean, like, as an artist, it's, it's, it's great to just create work and put it out there, and we don't always necessarily think about what we're going to do with our art. It's more a response to a situation we're in, and that's totally valuable, um, and it's great to share that. But I also believe that with the way social media and technology and the access te uh, technologies go in that you know artists do have a responsibility to put their message out there as well you know um so yeah i mean like we we have the capability to put it out there we can we can go on facebook and we can live feed we can make videos on our phones it's, it's simple to do now so as artists i think yeah let's create content all the time let's let's start things that we're passionate about but if nobody's seeing that like you say we're living in these little creative bubbles and we we go to gigs and we say things and people go, yeah, I agree with you because I already agree with you. Um, <laughs> so for me, part of the response to that is that I actually go out on the streets and do poetry um, on quite a regular basis. I will actually just go out and it's not busking. You know, I'm not asking for money. It's more about sharing that. And about a year and a half ago, started an organisation with another artist called The Bad Poets. And we just literally go out into parks and we go onto the beach and we go out into spaces around cities and we do pop-up poetry events and we get people yeah. to come up and speak and it's quite incredible the way that when you have an audience that comes to a poetry event, you know, they like poetry. But when you do a pop-up on the street and you're using the same poems and you're talking about politics, people stop and listen and they're really kind of affected by it and influenced by it. Um, so. Yeah, it's a whole different crowd and it's a different way to reach people. There's a, there's a great tradition in, in London of like one-off pop-up poetry events. So in like, totally mad places, poetry on buses, mm -hmm. poetry like, you know, just in, in tube stations and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's really important to, to make sure that not only you're speaking out through your work, but you're also speaking out with your work. And like where you put it is a really specific um, att attention to detail that I like seeing poets actually like, you know, uh, I like seeing them engage with that side of the thought process because being a poet is not just about what you write um, and using the term is not just about accepting it and self-defining. Personally, I think it's more about attitude, actions speak louder than words, um, Kate Temper said, in these times, life isn't lived, it is demonstrated, which I think is a really important quote. Um, and I'd, I'd like to know what you think about, like, um, so I've seen you in a few different sort of uh, situations. I've seen you feature here. I've seen you uh, slam, I think, vocals and verses, um, and then also do, like, a charity gig for Oxfam. Um, how did, what do you think about the way you put out your work? Do you think about where your gig is? Is it just any gig is a good gig? Do you think about how you put out your work online? Um, you know, obviously, like, you know, are you charging people for your work? Are you selling your art? Or are you just totally giving out for free? 
Um, yes, I do consider where I perform. I think I, I like to work with certain organisations. Um, and in terms of that, I mean, I happily work with lots of charities. I won't charge them. It's it's more about actually just kind of supporting what they're doing, which is a big reason that was at Oxjam. Um, so I think working with charities, yeah, great. Do it for free. As an artist, it'd be great if they, people paid me all the time. Um, <laughs> it, it would be great if people paid us as artists all the time. Um, but that's not the reality. So I think you have to kind of come to terms with that as an artist, that it's a balance between as we just said, sharing your work and kind of putting it out there and starting conversations and actually being able to afford to do it. So does that answer your question? Uh, it, it's certainly food for thought, to be honest, because I hadn't, you know, it, it's another person's perspective. That's what I love about these conversations, being able to sit down with a poet who I've, whose work I've enjoyed and then get to understand, like, the reasonings behind that as well, like, as, as a purely um, indulgent thing for me, I quite enjoy it. And, and to be honest, that, that's another side of it for me is, like, if I'm really honest, it is, it's quite a self-indulgent thing being a poet sometimes. <laughs> it's quite nice to be on stage and perform and be able to share your words. So that is also a motivation is that if I get the opportunity, you know, I enjoy this. Um, so it's not just about, you know, making impact and sending a message. You know, I actually really have fun with this. And I think that's something that I also kind of put across to my young people when I do poetry with them is that it should be fun, you know. Yeah, of course, man. Yeah. Like, if you're not having fun, then you're probably doing it wrong. In uh, some ways... It's not that obviously uh, simple, but you understand. Just a lovely like wave of chuckle from the room as I like stumble through my words. It's fine, it's fine. Uh, no, it's wicked. Um, so I'd uh, like to say again, thank you for coming down. And now we come to the final question, the kind of like wrap-up question, the question that I ask each of our guests. Uh, are you ready for the final question? I think so. <laughs> there was a tremble there. <laughs> wicked. Um, it's it, you know, it sounds fairly simple. How would you describe your creative process? Chaotic. Um, yeah. <laughs> Creative process, it, it really differs. Um, sometimes I'll go out and someone will say something and it sparks an idea and it's right there and I write a poem or I create a piece of art or I create a video and it's done. Sometimes something will go around my head for months and months and months and I'll be like, I need to use that, but it doesn't happen. And then over the course of a period of time, it'll happen. Sometimes it's really considered. I mean, I think you know probably as a poet and some of the other people in the room, you go to gigs and they're you know they're on theme, or you go and do a slam and it's on theme, so you end up actually really considering what you're writing. Um, did a poem tonight about childhood and father figures, and again that's where that came from. And that poem happened in like 25 minutes, probably one of the quickest poems I've ever written. But it also really was very like evocative, you know, like it's very emotional writing that poem so creative process for me is it's different every time but i think the one thing that binds the things that i perform is they've got a bit of purpose i really believe in what they're saying and it's something that i want other people to talk about i think so they're the three sort of main factors for me in all of my work really comprehensive i like that thank you for I'm a your, it, yeah, <laughs> a speaker of words and indeed a wonderful poet. Um, ladies and gentlemen, another round of applause for our feature at Poetry of the Pad number eight, lyrical political, Ross Monaghan. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is the Repeat Beat Poet. I've been your host for the evening. Um, this has been Poetry of the Pad. We are hanging out at the Pad, which is a creative workspace out in Dagenham. Um, you can find us online at the Pad TV. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, the whole deal. Thank you, everyone, for coming down. Peace out.
Next up, Busy Palmer talks to Stuart McKenzie about the relationship between his poetry, lyric writing, and work as an illustrator. This interview was recorded at the Royal Festival Hall, and Lizzie and Stuart were constantly being mobbed by hordes of screaming kids, which I've done my best to edit out. But it still might bug you a little bit. Here's Lizzie and Stuart. Drawing Rosie Huntington Whiteley's lips. Your lips have become a signature. I could sign a cheque with. Watch its flimsy paper pouts as it pays for my lunch. Plants one on the cashier, then disappears to the ladies' room to touch up. I held back from an early break to work out the signs of your cupid's bow. The logistics of being left-handed, its effect on my judgement. Rigged up a mechanism in my mind that would slam a door shut in my face to get the pout effect. But yours are pure strawberry, whatever that means. The line of your lips has become indelible as I'm pushing together two bits of swollen penny now covered in arabiata on my plate and they're talking to me, consoling me if I should ever shed a tear over my impending deadline. Thanks Stuart. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. (laughs) Good, nice to see you. So I'd like to begin just by asking you how you first got into writing poetry. Um... I, I've always written um, ever since I was a kid um, and then throughout kind of like 20s, 30s, intermittently kind of in kind of my early 40s, but nothing, nothing too seriously. And it was actually a friend that I used to work with got in touch with me one day and said, hey, I'm going to a poetry workshop at the Irish Centre in Camden. Do you want to come? Um, and I was like, mm, no. I, and I was like, I, I write poetry, you know, I'm a bit like Patti Smith, I shoot from the hip, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then she rang me back the next day and she said, mm, I, really, I really think you should come to this workshop because I was in a band writing lyrics and she, and she had this idea that oh, maybe it, you know, it helped with that. And because she'd called me the second time, I thought, mm, maybe that might be um, an idea. Um, so I said, okay. So I went to the Irish Centre, it was a poet called Roisin Tierney. Um, and that was my kind of revelation was, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. Roisin opened me up to so much poetry that I hadn't read. I, I mean, really, I hadn't read a great deal from, we read, as, you know, a tiny bit at school and, and anything from then was, was, was hardly anything really. I mean, I'd grown up listening to Patti Smith, John Cooper Clark, Jim Carroll, mm. um, you know, kind of beat poetry, you know, I don't know, I'm ashamed to say, I hadn't really read the classics or, you know, anything. So I was coming to it totally fresh and green and, you know, which is great. So are you currently performing any of your poetry or are you still just writing at the moment? Writing, generally I write, get poems published, you usually read at at the launch. Um, I was in Magma in 2015 as featured poet, Um, so I've read and magma launches um, when I've been in there, um, various kind of open mic nights, poetry, cafe. I'm with a peer group at Toriano Meeting House, um, so we um, do readings there. Yeah. Um, That's in Kentish Town, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and the, there's um, the um, poetry cafe, there's an, an event called The Shuffle, um, where various poets curate an evening and they, they choose poets that they like. So generally, um, things kind of happen when you might ask you oh do you want to come and read with such a body and yeah. it's very kind of you know I've got sort of I've got nothing there. planned I've got yeah. no kind of like gigging list 
of things that I'm doing. You know, sometimes you you know I'm reading here, I'm reading there, um, and then other times it's just you know somebody says, "Do you want to come and read at something?" And yeah. So would you say that um, the performing doesn't really have that much bearing on the writing itself? It's just something you do sort of as and when you get the opportunity. I've done um, collaborations with people where it's been a more kind of a lot more performative and mm -hmm. and video pieces and things. Um, but generally, I write for the page. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm kind of similar to you like that. I mean, performing my poetry is something that I like to do and do a fair bit on and off. I think it does depend on on what you've got. Sometimes it will sort of be immediately obvious whether it's something that is given to performing. Yeah. But it, it's not necessarily something you want to happen. It's just I don't know. Would you say you like it just for the work to be the important thing, and then you know there might you might find other potential in it. You know, you, when you're working on pieces and you, you think, oh, I, I can imagine this like this, or, you know, and and then you kind of put them to one side. And I think ultimately it always comes back to the page. Yeah. You know, yeah. I see the poems as just like these little worlds that, that you create. I used to, I really liked, I, when I was going out to clubs and stuff, I'd always maybe take a poem or a couple of poems and shove mm -hmm. them in my pocket and try them out on people just in case yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> get a bit of a captive audience and you know and I, it led to a lot of um, people asking me to uh, you know I've got I'm, I've been asked to curate such a thing in a magazine have you, have you got any poems based on you know based on this yeah it's been a nice way of, of getting my poems in magazines other than poetry magazines oh that's that's a nice way of looking at it I think I think I like the thought of your poems as being little worlds which could go in any direction <laughs> yeah it's just I want to I'd kind of type them up print them out and then yeah they'd be on a piece of paper so I'd just fold them up stick them in my pocket and then I'd kind of get them out and look at them read them and try them out on people you know and see how people were connecting with them mm -hmm. it, it, it is an exciting way to see what was working what wasn't working yeah, yeah perhaps it's more of an exercise for you to gauge um, how you feel about the quality of your work. I mean, I think perhaps that's why why I share my work with people, you know, just to see how they engage with it. I think, mm. I mean, I don't know if that is the reason why I write, but I think it probably is a big part of it. Yeah, to try and make those connections with people. I think that's really important. You're in a band, aren't you? Yeah. Um, did you want to tell us a bit about that, maybe, as we're on the performing, the subject of performing? Yeah, one of the poems in the uh, collection um, the pamphlet with Laudanum was I used to on a Friday night go over to a friend of mine and we just used to jam in the living room mm -hmm. um, he was very technical so he's keyboards and computers and stuff and I'd bring over my guitar and, and stuff and play um, it always been this thing it, it was like in the 80s I was messing about with keyboards and synthesizers with with, with friends and in the 90s I wanted it to be real music and then the late 90s it was like back to sequencing yeah you know so I've been in and out of bands and I think once I started writing poetry I the last band I was in I was like right that's that's it now and like you know the bass guitar ad was under the bed mm -hmm. gathering dust and I just really took to writing poetry because I in I think in with the poetry, I'm you know I'm in charge of the rhythm, the the, the voice, the everything, everything, <laughs> yeah. you know. You know <laughs> and uh, so I was like, oh, I quite like this. I'm yeah. in my own one-man band now, and it's fine. I'd have to, you know. And um, I met the other guy that I'm in the band with, James, and um, we were just chatting 
he's had had an interest in playing the bass and said, oh, have a go, you know, learn my bass, you know, have a go of it. Before I knew it, I, you know, another band got together. Yeah. Um, the reason why I wanted to ask about that, I was wondering how far uh, the different things you do influence each other. So do you, do you write any of the song lyrics for the band? If so, how similar are they to your poetry? The lyrics, it's a collaboration either you know, we write pieces, James writes pieces, and we, you know, we come together. Mm. Um, and then really working quite spontaneously, yeah. you know, um, might um, jam around at my flat, get a bass line down, some mm-hmm. guitars, some drums, and then look what we've got, you know, in our, wherever we write, in our, you know, journals and scrapbooks and stuff, and then see what we've got and put, you know, things together. Yeah. And you end up with kind of dialogues and narratives that you didn't expect, you know, that seem to, again, take on a life of their own. Yeah. Um, there's, we, I, don't, I don't sit down and write a song formally. I love writing poetry. I, songwriting I find quite hard, mm-hmm. to be honest. You know, you've got a certain amount of time to say something, keep and get audience engagement. Yeah. You know, a few years ago, the lyrics were really dense and you know, not making much sense and, you know, and I'm like, oh, I don't know about this, I want to write something simpler. Yeah. I'd, I'd have this struggle with, I'd have a line for a song and I think, mm, that's more, that's more for a poem than a song. I don't know how I knew, I just knew. Yeah, I know what you, you know, mean. So I'd shove these lines, put them right, oh, that's over there, that's a song. I, I think sometimes the way I, I'm thinking about something, with the guy, I was in the, the band, the previous band I was in before this one, there was a lot of ad-libbing, improvising where you just get on a train of thought or you're looking around you in the in the room where you are for prompts yeah um, seeing things going on outside the window and that really you know led to something mm-hmm. and then you just get these great lines and you think oh no that's a poem that's not a song no <laughs> don't i don't know where he's there so i'd be forever um going no that's a poem that's a poem that's a poem this is you know for the song it's funny isn't it how you you feel that there are those distinctions there. It's yeah. interesting. I mean, songwriting is a real skill. Oh, I've tried it. It's it's not the same, is it? I can't do it at all. Yeah, even, know you why. know, just, you know, I love, you know, classic pop songs yeah. and the kind of 60s doo-wop yeah. and, you know, and, the, you know, the girl groups and, you know, and, and everyone's like, oh, that's easy. That's just, you know, yeah, yeah, baby. But, you know, it's it's hard. Yeah, it would be an interesting subject for another podcast, I think. Perhaps here we could have a second reading. Mm-hmm. All that jazz. Bob Fosse got a mention this evening at your salmon supper I turned down in place of a takeout Venetiana. Too much coffee. I was all jazz hands bringing it back, jumping at the sound of a black sports car's squawking alarm and the high-pitched squeals of punters hanging out front of the local brasserie. I love your West End flat, and I'm sad to see you fly off to Japan to teach, and I'm sad at the death of your neighbour too. Two weeks to think his body was there, all the time you kept knocking, peering in through his letterbox. Now, what was it we were saying about Bob Fosse again? Thank you. We probably should have mentioned this earlier, you did briefly mention it just now. Um, your, the book that you're reading from, published by Laudanum? That's right, yeah. Um, so it's, it's three of you, isn't it, in the book, and you've each each written, is it a set number of poems? Um, it's ten, ten poems. Each of you have um, written ten poems. Yeah. Um, and your, your section in there is called The Dead Weight of Beauty, isn't yeah. it? Could you maybe tell us a little bit about how this publication came about? I was reading at the Magma launch, um, and Tiffany, that 
um, the publisher, Tiffany Antondu. I'd met her kind of previously and we would, she just said, oh, I really like your reading. Um, and she was putting um, an anthology together um, called Asterisms, which was poetry based on punctuation. Um, she'd asked me if I wanted to submit something, so I submitted a poem for that. And then she said, I'm putting a, um, a chapbook anthology together. And I, you know, I really like, I like your poems. And that was, that was it really. Yeah. And so this selection in there, was that put together especially for the book then? You didn't already have that sort of in mind? No, I had um, the sele- a larger selection thinking about um, working towards a pamphlet. Um, I mean, these are poems that I've been working on since, poems that I'd, I'd written since 2000, like between 2009 and 2012, I mm. think. So there was a, you know, a, groups of poems that I thought, oh, this could be good, oh, this could be good. So we um, put a selection together, had a look, see which would be suitable for them for the chapbook and mm. these are the poems that I chose obviously as always we'll put um, a link to where that can be found in the podcast description so have you got are you currently submitting to magazines have you got anything else in the pipeline for publications it's been quite over the last couple of months um, unfortunately I had a brain hemorrhage in September and was in hospital for four days so the consultant in the hospital said, right, no work for, for three months. So I did spend the last three months reading a lot, yeah. which was great. Um, I'm back to work um, next week. You know, luckily everything's um, really good yeah. with, the, with the health and everything. Um, but it did give me a lot of downtime yeah. to look at things and assess things. And, and, and it, it's been um, quite a nice, Quite, well, no, it's been quite a nice three months. I mean, <laughs> an enfor- a kind of an enforced kind of um, sabbatical. Yeah, well, it'll tend to put a stop to things, something like that, won't yeah. it? <laughs> Give you a bit yeah, of time yeah. off. Well, I'm glad we've got you here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I suppose it's probably quite an important thing to have a bit of time just to read and collect your thoughts back together. And, yeah, and I mean, I was like limited that. due to, they just said, keep your, you know, your brain activity, you know, down to you know, don't overdo it. So yeah. I was, there's a bit of selected reading. There was um, M Train, Patty Smith, which was great actually, because I was basically getting up every day and going out and going for coffee. And as I was reading M Train, I was kind of like, oh, this is pretty much what this is about. Yeah. You know, and then I, I think I read the, um, the Big Midweek by um, Steve Hanley, the bass player with The Fall, which is a great book. I'm quite a slow reader mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, hence, that's why took me a while to, to kind of, you know, get through. I mean, these, all these different strings, like the music, the poetry, the illustration. It's nice to have the, these different things to work with while, yeah. you know, you, you're, you're working on one thing, you've got something that's kind of simmering over here. Yeah. You know, so, and that's, I, I like it that way. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's good if you, yeah, if you're struggling with one thing, obviously you've got something else you can keep your mind on and then, yeah, something, yeah, while you're writing music, as you were saying, you might get an idea for a poem and then you can keep it there. Obviously, we didn't talk about your illustration um, as another thing that you do, but I mentioned the band because I always find it interesting when people do have multiple pursuits. You know, it's interesting to know whether or not they influence each other or whether, you, like you, they're just kept as separate things to go between. No, they do, they do all influence each other. Obviously, the um, drawing Rosie Huntington, White Little Lips is... is my experience as, a, as an illustrator. I had a job, I was working for US Cosmo in New York, but from my a studio down in um, 
um, Blackfriars and I'd be there, I'd have an illustration brief and the, the briefs are really, really short deadlines. Um, it would be, you know, draw how to get the perfect arched eyebrow or how to put hmm. your, you know, the blusher on and, you know, and, and while I was working on the illustrations that I'd be thinking of, oh, it'd be a great way of getting this into a, you know, a poem. Yeah, and, I suppose you know, that's, that's the way it, it works in your mind, perhaps. Yeah, maybe there's not a direct influence necessarily, but they all kind of feed off each other, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting. So some, you know, some poems are just, just like, come into being. They just come, they're just kind of poems, just kind of take you unaware, really. Yeah, yeah they're just, I, I suppose it, how it would, it's what, how it would work for, for anybody writing, it's things just pop up in your life elsewhere, don't they? Yeah. And then it, it becomes a poem. They don't come up to you no. formally and introduce themselves. No. Oh, no, I'm your next poem. <laughs> no, they're exactly. usually tapping you on the shoulder <laughs> and you look round and like, yeah. you know, and, and suddenly they, there's one on the go. I think that's why, I think that's why I like it. It's unexpected. If I knew what the result of, of poems were going to be, I, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. But because it's always a, like, a pleasant surprise. It's much more fluid, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think as with the band as well, I've always done things with just no expectations. Yeah. You know, um, you know, there's never, you know, there's been a, you know, a, s a small idea of where I'd like to go with it, but it's always taken on a bit of a life yeah. of its own. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess, what I was leading on to next. Whether you had any any kind of aims with with any of this stuff, or but I, I get the impression from everything you've said that you are quite spontaneous and you sort of let things come and you just go with them. Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, as, as I said, you, you've got a, a vague idea of where you'd like to be with it, you know, and, and then it's just getting out there. And I think the most important thing has been engaging with people, yeah. has been speaking to people, connecting with people, letting people hear, hear what you're doing. Mm -hmm. In that way, social media has been great. Somebody can, you know, see this or you know, hear that. Would you um, say that's what it comes down to for you? Is that kind of the the most important core of it is it communicating and yeah. engaging yeah just getting out there really yeah I mean poems are meant to be meant to be heard you know not putting a book on a shelf and walked away from and yeah. you know just got to take your chances I can take your chances with it sometimes you might put whip a poem out and someone says oh not right now yeah I was like yeah have you got any poems let's have you know let's have a have a poem and also unexpected um a kind of unexpected readership when you least expect it yeah i should probably say this because it's going to make me laugh if i don't but um obviously i told you just before we were meeting we're in the festival hall in case you're wondering why it's so noisy and just before we were meeting the voice came over the loudspeaker telling everyone to get out of the building immediately uh, and I text Stuart to tell him this had just happened, and he said, "Oh, obviously they know poetry is about to happen." <laughs> it's, it's not always uh, everyone's cup of tea, is it? But yeah, if you can find the spaces and the the right time to to let it out and you know give it to the people who you want to engage with, then yeah, I'm just amazing to be. I was here at the T.S. Eliot Awards last week, this weekend. It's just amazing to see, you know. An auditorium packed yeah. full of people all all there for poetry. Yeah. When people That's say, Ooh, do people still write poetry? Yeah. You know, and you're like, Well yeah, here. If, I think it depends here, where you go, the, doesn't it? These are the authors and these are the you know, the readers. Yeah, there's plenty going on, there's plenty of plenty of audience for it, 
Um, but there's still definitely, I mean, it's something that comes up a lot in the podcast. There's still definitely a stigma attached, isn't there, to... I, don't, I mean, I don't know if you find this too. I think the usual response to that is people have had a lot of um, bad experiences at school with poetry. That's usually and it's what kind it of is. turned them off because yeah. it's like, oh. But once they start reading poetry and, and realise, you know, that there's a variety of poets out there with a, a variety of, of voices. You know, I didn't, years ago when I was really going through a lot of poets so I was like oh I don't know who, who I like what how will I like you know and then suddenly I'll, these poets pops up and you're just like oh, you know yeah. that's amazing you know you get I was used there's an Oxfam shop in uh, Marlebone mm. um, so I'm a freelance lecturer um, and I was just going in there and they had a, a quite a lot of secondhand poetry books so I was kind of using that as my um, whatever was in there yeah. I was just you know, okay, let's take this, you know, I think one of the first volumes I got was um, American Poetry up until 1952. Yeah. You know, and that, and that dis- I discovered a lot of um, poets in that that I really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then, you know, people have passed things on to you or say, yeah. oh, check out this poet, or oh, check out that yeah. poet. Um, so it's very kind of organic, you know. I think it's been the same for me. I mean, it's it's been something I've done for most of my life since I was a kid reading and writing poetry and um, there have been times where I've kind of not done any and felt like maybe I'm going to give it up and and then there's always been something new that I've never imagined would come along that's sort of kick-started me again to do it yeah. and I think it's a really it's a beautiful thing that that happens um, perhaps on that note we'll have your third and final poem a speck of glitter I'm your disco damaged darling distant relative of crushed beetle shell a flasher at a beauty spot. Come pitch up a picnic and party. Not as lavish as Malachite. I'll cling to eyebrows, hitch a lift on cheekbones. I could never do a day job or tone it down a notch. Stupidity flickers in me like a light. I'm two-faced, iridescent. Can't trust me to keep my mouth shut. Thanks very much. It's been lovely chatting to you, Stuart. You too, Lizzie. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Uh, Bye, everybody. For the final section of today's episode, I was over in Hackney on February 11th to chat with the folk that formed the core of poetry on the picket line. First up, poet Grimchip explains what the group does and why, and then we've got some poems read live on the picket over a very dodgy PA by Chip himself, Tim Wells, Mark Coverdale, Nadia Drews, and Janine Booth. Right, hello. Um, I am absolutely freezing, and I am... It's tight, isn't it, mate? It is tight, yeah. It's really tight. Um, I am currently on what can only be described as the wrong side of the river, but for a very good cause with uh, Mr Chip Grimm. How are you doing, Chip? Yes, I'm good, I'm good. I'm very cold, as I say. Uh, it's brass monkeys out here. So, we're standing outside the Picture House Cinema on Mayor Street, Hackney Central. Um, oh, Hackney Town Hall, yeah. Hackney Town Hall. Yeah. I'm going to let you descri- explain exactly why we're here and why I'm freezing. Okay, well, this is a, a poetry on a picket line action. Poetry on a picket line is something that started a couple of years ago uh, during the National Gallery dispute, which went on for about a year. Uh, and I was involved with that one way or another, doing some trade union organising. Uh, and one or two other people I know who were, uh, it was, it's kind of quite, a, quite an arty uh, trade union branch. 
that one of the one two uh, artists and uh, and writers involved in it. We made speeches and uh, said our piece a thousand times, uh, and uh, generally there was people walking past who would be interested on that on that picket line, uh, and it suddenly came to us that actually it wouldn't be a bad idea to do something else. Uh, and as there were one or two poets involved who didn't mind standing up and shouting the odds, we had a little impromptu uh, poetry reading every now and again, uh, and that turned into something where we actually organised an evening uh, on a Friday night. Uh, strike action piece of work. Well, we had a picket line and we invited half a dozen poets to turn up. You were there, David, I think, uh, one or two others, Tim Wells, Janine Booth, people like that. And it was excellent. Uh, it went down really well with the pickets and people stopped to, who were going past, uh, threw money in the bucket for the collection for the strike fund. As it happened, that was the day the strike ended. So we kind of spun it that after 111 days of strike action, getting all kinds of celebrities involved, going to Parliament, all that sort of stuff, the management still hadn't moved. We only took one reading from a, a bunch of poets and they caved in. Po poetry is inevitably the end game, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it didn't quite play out like that, but that was that, our spin on it. Yeah. Anyway, people heard about it. Other trade union branches who were involved in action started to invite us down. We did the junior doctors. We did the transport museum uh, cleaners we've done one or two others we've done the Hackney Picture House before they really liked having us uh, and they invited us back they're not going to give up and neither are we we're going to keep doing it the idea is to get the voice of poetry on the picket lines and the voice of picket lines into poetry and neither can be a bad thing has it been easy to um convince the different organisations to let you come down and read have they always understood completely what uh, you want to do yeah I mean it, it, Communication in this day and age uh, is still a thing. Whilst we have just turned up unannounced, it can be a bit of a surprise to people who, particularly if they're a bit new to the game, uh, organising the picket line and suddenly find they've got a bunch of poets who want to speak. Yeah, you know, uh, what we try and do is we try and make contact with people in advance. And to be fair, uh, some union branches have contacted us. We're certainly going to try and get involved at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, where there's all kinds of stuff going off. I understand that some of the people who were involved in industrial action were uh, dismissed out of hand yesterday. I was working with some people who went down to that picket line up, hoping to make touch with them uh, and be involved with their further work. So uh, it would be nice to bring a, a whole crew of people down there. But uh, what I would say, is, you know, what is quite interesting is that totally uh, inspired by us, I think, but uh, not uh, organised by us, is a South Wales chapter of Poets on a Picket Line. Uh, and they do exactly the same kind of thing, uh, obviously, in South Wales. So, you know, the idea is that it should, be, you know, if you are a poet or you aspire to be any kind of a writer uh, and you walk past the picket line, then why not ask him for five minutes to say your piece? You get your, your uh, sample of your, uh, of your work across, they get entertained, you show s s solidarity, they feel that solidarity, some of the passers by stop and maybe put a, uh, a pan in the bucket it's all good, everybody wins, it's all good um, Obviously you, Tim and Janine, you've mentioned before, old heads at this, you've been around for a while, especially um, well, I was going to say unfortunately because this is like a big second wave for you, is it easy to get younger poets along and involved? I think it's quite interesting, it's been when people have heard about it people have, uh, you know, it's been an awful lot of people say, oh yeah, that's really good stuff but quite a small percentage of people have come along to support it. I'd like to see more people. Uh, it's certainly not exclusive. I'm not going to uh, knock anybody for not doing it. 
uh, because standing outside in the cold and hollering is not everybody's cup of tea. And you know, there have been times, you will recall, where we were uh, outside St Thomas's for the junior doctors, there was no PA, there's a lot of traffic going by, but it was a whole world of really good engaged people. And well, you know me, I'm the mouth of the Thames, I can holler for England, so I'm just going to shout my poetry. Other people, you know, they find it a little bit more difficult and, and their poems are perhaps not the kind of thing that, you know, go over quite so well in the open air. I absolutely appreciate that. Everybody's got to do what they can do. But if anybody does feel the, uh, the urge to show support in that way, please do get in touch. It's certainly not exclusive. What's the, what's the best way to do that? It's on Facebook. Uh, there's a Poetry on a Picket Line Facebook page and that's the easiest way. Or you can find me on Facebook. Uh, Grim Chit Poet is probably the best. That's an easy way to get in touch. It's certainly not supposed to be uh, exclusive. And don't think that just because you don't write political poetry, whatever that is, that you know, you're know you not welcome. I mean, I, personally, uh, I think that uh, a little bit more engagement with the everyday world might be a good thing. There goes my cab. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, that's just me. I, I tend to write poetry of the street but you know it's up but solidarity is the important thing isn't it i mean that's yeah, what we saw yeah. in the junior doctors particularly you've got a lot you had a lot of young people from mainly it's a bit of a stereotype but mainly of pretty well off backgrounds and they were really pleasantly surprised at a load of working class urbans were coming out and support yeah, weren't they? Uh, absolutely yeah I, I mean i'd say that i'd say that everybody's welcome um you know uh, Certainly all the poets who have been, I mean, they write in a variety of styles. All of them take their work very seriously. I'd love to see all kinds of other poets down here. Um, you know, uh, feel free to start your own thing. And on that note, get in touch with Poetry and Picking Line. My hand's about to fall off because it's so cold. I think we need to go for a, <laughs> a pint or a hot toddy, mate. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cheers. Sir. It's a good idea to have a bit of poetry on the picket line and a good idea to have a bit of, of a picket line in the poetry. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get things underway. This one's called Not The Right One. From garage land to Instagram, where the body shots are photoshopped, where the girls all love it, and the boys. They make a lot of noise about new forms of communication, but no one gets the message. Not the right one. Someone left the light on when they should have turned it off on their way out. The ones who shout about not wanting to be shamed or judged are the ones least likely to take a long, hard look at themselves. The shelves are full of crap in December. Remember, some of us have neither the cash nor the inclination to celebrate. You learn to hate the sinner Anderson. Now, if we're starting something, let's begin. Cheers. Can I introduce you to a long-time mucker of mine? We've been ducking and diving for about 30 years or so. The inimitable Mr. Tim Rosa. Hello, Pickets. How are we doing? This part is called Richard Dawkins on a zero-hours contract. Didn't used to believe in God, but now I do firmly. If there were no God, I wouldn't be so God-forsaken. Short and sweet, a bit like the man himself. Can I introduce you to a poet, uh, quite new to the scene, but very close to my heart? Nadia Jones. 
thought I'd do something in the name of Valentine's Day. This is about love in the 80s. You always danced with flailing arms and you glittered with suspect charm, had foolish pants and spiked up hair and danced like the devil may care for me. Although all desolate disco floors were stages which were rightly yours, through lacquered fringe, I could still see that you performed this role. For me, you were awful, but I liked you. You were wonderful, and they disliked you a lot. You were not the boy next door. You knew what makeup was for, and in one horse town of written law, you were hated by many, adored by more and me. We met behind the betting shop, and once the feverish gambling stopped, I realised the odds were high and cashed my slip and said goodbye. I'd sometimes see you skateboard past and long for things that move that fast and sneer at things that people say and walkman on, I walked away. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you very much, Nadia. Well, I'm not going to introduce you to somebody who, uh, who is going to pick up the best dressed man on the picket line of all. That's usually reserved for either Tim or me, but in this instance, Mr. Mark Coverdale. Cheers. Uh, this is a new one for you. Sharpened by the state. They are the axe that cuts who ain't the sharpest tool in the box. What kind of tool should we be? Some are very happy and very good at just being tools. Are we knives sharpened by society for kids without lives to stabbing kids without lives? Are we broadswords sharpened by others for slaying others abroad? We grind and strop for what sense to sharpen points on this barbed wire fence? Are we barbroom panel saws for which there is no point sipping screwdrivers down the crowbar joint? That's the private equity dream. Ours, it would seem, is to be aware, make aware and fight like mad for what is fair. We are sharpened over time. We are not devised to be anti this or that or anti bleeding clockwise. We're all chisels, see? Sharpened on many sides. Sharper point and brain to carve our way practically, beautifully, with or against the grain. So stay sharp now. Noses to the grindstone. And we'll never let the bastards grind us down. Uh, thank you, Mark. So it's good to get Abertrade Genius giving you a good beep up. The old bus drivers are always to be relied on. Uh, I'd like to introduce you to somebody without whom no picket line is complete. The author of the award winning, best selling, mostly hating tours, Hello. This is a poem written uh, specially for occasions like this. It's called The Eleventh Commandment. I'd rather go to prison or be given a huge fine or have cosmetic surgery from Dr. Frankenstein. Sit through a boring lecture on interior design. Yes, I'd rather do most anything than cross a picket line. I'd rather scratch my itches with a prickly porcupine or spend the night in darkest woods when evil stars align de-skin my legs with sandpaper and wade through lakes of brine. Yes, I'd like rather drown in vats of rats than cross a picket line. I'd rather drink a cocktail made of sweat and turpentine. 
or live beneath the spiky hedge in Lower Liechtenstein, lie face down in the middle of an open cast coal mine. Yes, I'd rather eat stale camel's feet than cross a picket line. I'd rather be like Tarzan and go swinging from a vine. Or jump off that big bridge and then go swimming in the tide. Bathe naked with piranhas in the Hyde Park Serpentine. Yes, I'd rather lose my other eye than cross a picket line. I'd rather rub a massive turd and try to make it shine. Or roll some poo in super glue and stick it to my spine. Invest my loss in Enron stock and watch its sharp decline. Yes, I'd rather go to hell and back than cross a picket line. I'd rather face the rising storm of 1939. Or have my photo taken standing by a turn right sign. Pretend to have the time of day for Michael Hesseltine. Yes, I'd rather have my nails pulled out than cross a picket line. I'd rather take a solemn pledge to never drink more wine or place my genitalia in the mouth of a dead swine. Become a shadow minister, then naff off and resign. Yes, I'd rather scrape the barrel's arse than cross a picket line. I'd rather turn my bedroom into a Justin Bieber shrine. Or use an off-peak travel card at 25 past nine. Send Ian Duncan Smith a secret scented valentine. But I'd never, no not ever, ever cross a picket line. Uh.